I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, Classical WETA host Linda Carducci joins me as we dive into the life of Mozart, which is more drama-filled than you'd assume. And with musical examples, we get into everything from his earliest compositions to his conspiracy-filled requiem left unfinished on his deathbed. Now, Linda, does this sound like Mozart to you? Yes, it actually does sound like Mozart to me. Well, it does when you think about it for a second, but that's a strange instrument. Have you heard this before? It's a glass harmonica. <laughs> no, I, I'm not, I haven't heard this instrument before, but did Mozart play this work on harpsichord originally? No, it's originally for glass harmonica. And it's actually, and Ben Franklin invented this instrument, but Mozart, later on in his life, in 1791, he wrote this piece, and I think that's just so interesting. It's a different sound. You would it sounds like you're at a carnival. It does, and it's interesting that he wrote it that late in his life when he was writing the Requiem and some very deep works. That oh yeah, you know something like this. Although this was probably very easy for him to compose, and maybe he wanted to compose something specifically for that instrument. And we're going to get to all those pieces that you just mentioned here as we explore Mozart's life. Mozart is a composer. Well, his name is so synonymous with just genius. Someone says, oh, he's a Mozart, or she's this little Mozart. But I think not everyone can recognize his music right away. There's a couple of melodies that once you tell people, oh yeah, that's Mozart, but it's not as, I think, uh, synonymous with, say, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5, the opening to that. So let's go back to the beginning, the beginning of Mozart's life. And even before that, in this episode, we're going to be saying, uh, referring to numbers or Kerschel numbers. Basically, in the 1800s, Ludwig von Kerschel sought out to put in a catalog all of Mozart's works in chronological order. So it's kind of a useful shorthand. So you can say, you know, K122 instead of the whole name of a, of a piece. If you're Googling something, it's an easy um, reference. But that's what we're talking about when we say k something something or Kerschel. So Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, born January 27th, 1756 in Salzburg, Austria. His father, Leopold Mozart, his mother, Anna Maria. And he had a sister too, right? Yes, Marie Anne, who was, uh, who they called her Nonerol. I think, believe she was five years older than Mozart. Uh, Mozart's family was very, very important to him in the development of him as a composer and a musician because they would play music in the in the household. Um, I believe Nonerol and, and Mozart were the only surviving children of Leopold and his wife. And so Leopold and Mozart... Uh, that is Wolfgang, and his sister would, would play, and they'd play the harpsichord, and they would compose for each other. And Nonerol was a, was a talented pianist, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Leopold was a violinist and had written a, a popular uh, treatise that was very well regarded on violin playing. But when Mozart was born, he said, that is the miracle that God let be born in Salzburg. And Leopold believed that it was his divine duty to show Mozart to the entire world. Um, Mozart's mother also played an important role. She was uh, quite supportive of Mozart. He had a great, great affection for her, traveled with her. And her father, that would be Mozart's maternal grandfather, was not a musician by profession, but apparently he was a talented musician. So Mozart had some good musical genes. And I think part of this making of a genius starts right 
shortly after he's born because his sister, as you said, who they um, called Nanaro, mm-hmm. she was five years older and he sees her, you know, it's his big sister. He wants to be like her, I guess, but he sees her learning music with Leopold before Mozart's even doing anything. And so he's watching her. And I think a big part of making a genius is having um, one, a, a major influence and inspiration like that a fantastic teacher like Leopold Mozart was, and just a drive for it. I think Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in some of his um, writing, but he kind of he had all three. And Mozart would kind of play around on the um, harpsichord or, or keyboard instruments, and he actually wrote something when he was like four years old, and he gave it to his dad, and I guess his dad and a, and a friend, they looked at it, and they just kind of laughed because it was just scribble on a page. There was no notes or anything, but... Then they heard Mozart playing some of it, and they realized, oh, my gosh, he's actually kind of come up with something. So we can actually listen to the very first piece that Mozart ever wrote, and it sounds like this. That's the whole thing. Hmm. Uh, it's a fun little cute melody that basically Mozart played and then his father um, wrote down for him. It's not advanced at all, but you can hear the germ of something that was to come oh, in his yeah. later piano concertos when you listen oh, yeah. to that. Yeah. I mean, when I was five years old, I think I was playing in the mud with Lincoln Logs. <laughs> I was not sitting at a harpsichord um, having my father transcribe for me. But this kind of went on for a bit, and he's, he was getting lessons. He taught himself basically violin when he was six, not like an expert or anything, but he could kind of get away with playing um, in some of the trios that the family would play together. Yes, and he served as a concertmaster, too, in the Salzburg Orchestra when he got a little bit older. So, yes, he played violin. I believe that he surprised his father by also knowing how to play the viola, you know. And as you say, maybe not on an expert level, but still he could just jump right into the orchestra as need be or into a string quartet as need be and fill out fill out that, uh, that set as needed. And we'll just go right into that, into... 1762, um, just before he's um, six years old, that's when he goes on a little quick trip to um, Munich with his sister and his and his dad to play there. And he was very well received. And I think that's especially when uh, Leopold figured out, okay, this is something that everyone needs to see this. And he also realized the financial opportunity that it was for him as well. So later that year, in 1762, they went off on a journey through Europe, Mm -hmm. visiting in total countries like Belgium, Germany, England, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Austria, Switzerland, Slovakia, Czech Republic, over 200 places and cities and everything. Think of all the influence that Mozart was being exposed to at that time. They were coming out of the Baroque era and into this transitional period um, between the Baroque and classical. And um, Mozart was being exposed to to still some of the Baroque music that was being performed, but also this evolution into what would become the classical era, a little bit more reliance on on elegance, clarity, uh, melody supported by harmony. So Mozart was hearing all of these wonderful influences. And in Italy, Italian opera, which was very big, not just in Italy, but in other parts of Europe. And that made a major um, influence on him as he became an operatic composer later on in his life. And these trips are very well documented. I mean, he was going to these cities and playing for royalty, but it wasn't always pretty. They would often, they would just have to show up in a city 
and ask for a meeting with the um, royal court or whatever. And then they'd have to wait for that invitation for the royal court to say, okay, come on and play for the royal family or the archbishop or something like that. So they could be waiting a long time. And then they'd be waiting longer after that, hoping for a gift, hoping for some money. And sometimes it was kind of a thing to see how long the um, a royal person could make someone wait for this, you know, kind of gift. And they also got sick. I think they all, um, Mozart and his sister almost died. They got so sick. Yes. In one of these journeys. Three years, over three years of going around. And he would play blindfolded. Um, he was tested. Someone sat him down alone and gave him a melody and said, hey, take this and make some variations off of it. And Mozart just sat down and just went to town for like, you know, half an hour. Yeah, improvising on those. Improvising. You've never, yeah. never seen it before. Yeah, that, it, it's funny. Don't We tend to uh, to focus on the glamour of the travel and Mozart going to these rich, beautiful courts where there were royalty who were welcoming him. You know, we tend to look at it as, as, on the surface yeah. and not all of the, the nitty-gritty daily details that you were just talking about. And so when he's eight years old mm-hmm. in uh, 1764, that's when he writes his first symphony. And this is very simple, and it's something that Mozart would do a lot, and that is use arpeggios, kind of outlining a chord in a lot of his, and pretty much all, in a lot of his music you find that, especially when he's younger, starting a piece, opening it up with this kind of arpeggio figure. But he's eight years old. No, it's not unbelievably complex, but he's eight years old and he's writing that. That's Incredible. It, it, it certainly is. It shows also the influence a little bit of uh, Johann Christian Bach, who Mozart had met in London and um, was very impressed with. I think they had sort of a, a mutual um, attraction as far as music goes. J.C. Bach was older than Mozart, but made an influence. And that was a big thing, as you're saying. Mozart is not just playing for the royalty. He's meeting other composers. Um, they're being Im- impressed with him, and he's getting he's learning from them as well. And so speaking of first, we heard his first work, his first symphony. What about his first opera, um, Apollo at Hyacinthus? Yeah, that is based on a Greek myth, and that was popular during Mozart's era to have um, opera that was based on Greek myth, old stories that had very high um, ideals as far as their plot line would go. And um, also at that time, Gluck was starting to make evolution in opera, to make drama just as important, if not more so, than the, than the music. So opera was not just a vehicle for singers to go out there and sing and show off their vocal skills, but to enhance the opera. And I think that that's what Mozart was trying for in this very early opera, that, that style of Gluck. That's Christoph Willibald Gluck, yes, right? Yes, yes. And um, as you're saying, with these Greek themes and morals coming out of the Baroque period, ending around 1750, just before Mozart uh, was born. And here is part of an aria from this very first opera. Again, Mozart is 11.
And you can hear he's kind of outlining chords as a bit of repetition. But that is, I think it's one thing for someone who's 10 or 11 to be writing some music like a, a symphony, but to have the complexity of a singer and orchestra together with a plot line, all the words, it's it's very hard to make the words or have the music for the words or vice versa together. And I think that's already at 11. That's pretty mature. Yes, they're showing great skill already. We can hear little foreshadowings there of the, the Queen of the Night, for example, in Magic Flute. Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to the wonderful orchestration that Mozart uses in his operas to accompany the arias. So Mozart spends several years with his family. Again, we forgot to say almost his sister is with them mm-hmm. and she is performing as well. And she was a talent to show off at this early age. As she got older, at a, at a marrying age, like 16 or 18, that's when basically Leopold had her like stop music. Yes. As it wasn't at that time, unfortunately, you know, it was improper or whatever. So we don't know much about her performing activities, if at all, beyond this early age. No, and they were very close growing up. But around 18, as you say, when, when it was the age for, for Nonarol to get married, she and Mozart drifted apart. And uh, as they continued on in their life in the next decade or two, they, they really didn't have a close relationship. Um, at the end of Mozart's life, a few years later, it was said that Nonarol found some letters that described Mozart's living conditions and his illness, and she was shocked to hear that. So she did not have a, a close relationship with him as they grew older. So they've been on the road together, mm-hmm. as we would say, and they come off the road in 1766, and they go back to their hometown, Salzburg, but they don't stay there for very long. They go to Vienna in um, 1767, and that would prove to be a very big part of, well, in the future for Mozart, going to the ultimate place to be musically in Europe, and that would be Vienna. That was the hub of music at that time. Um, Josef Haydn had been living there at times, and, and he was influenced by Haydn, too. And we can start to see that Mozart is understanding then that there's, there's fru- rich, rich um, opportunities and rich music that's being developed outside of Salzburg. And so we start to see this little bit of ambition now of Mozart wanting to leave Salzburg. I mean, it didn't happen for a while yet for him to formally leave. And that was around the time, too, Mozart, I guess, was technically still living in Salzburg. And he was serving as concertmaster in the Salzburg court and started to write more and more complex music, specifically those five violin concertos around that time. And so he's concertmaster in the orchestra. So he's playing, you know, um, first violin. He's in control of, you know, of within the orchestra. But he's not known for his composing yet. But you mentioned um, his violin concertos? Yes. Number two is especially beautiful. And you can already hear in within just a few years later of him now being off the road and kind of focusing. This is what his music is sounding like. I think the lines, well, the the solo line on the violin, that's the third movement of the second concerto. It's already, there's already more to it. There's a little bit better interaction between the orchestra, the accompaniment, you, you could say this time, and uh, the violin too. Yeah, the melody is longer now. It's a little more varied than what we were hearing in those earlier examples you gave us. And it's all of this influence that he encountered while he was traveling, as you say, you know, in England and in Italy and in various parts of Germany and, and Vienna. Yes, and this is a time also, speaking of Italy, when he was also making a couple of trips to Italy. Still, 
with his father. His father is basically his, his guardian through most of his life and that his father was very strict, would not let him travel alone. There's a time where he goes to Paris, which we'll get to in a second, but he goes with his mother. Yes. Even to get married in his 20s, his father is, you know, extremely strict on all of that. The five violin concerti of, um, I think, 1775 was when he completed all five of them. I think there's some thought that maybe the first one was started in 1773. But those are works that are continued to be played on the concert stages 200 years later. So there's some meat and substance to those works. And we can just listen to really quick the... His first piano concerto. And now this is where things get a little confusing. Piano concerto number one through four aren't actually Mozart's concertos. So number five is technically his first um, full piano concerto. Yes. And the piano sounds different there, right? Is this how the piano may have sounded for Mozart? Yes, because a little bit later on is when he started writing piano concertos for what was then the forte piano and not this this clavier. So he wanted a different sonority. That came a little bit later on when he was writing piano concertos. But at this time, this clavier and the harpsichord, those were the primary instruments. We didn't have what eight-foot, you know, Grand Steinways. That was, uh, you know, in another century. That's right. Well, that shows you the balance, too, that Mozart was writing for, a balance of of a keyboard instrument that wasn't quite as strong and had the sonorities of, you say, as an eight-foot Steinway. That was when he, in his year when he was writing those works, whereas the, the balance between a small orchestra and a clavier that wasn't putting out a lot of volume. So he's in Salzburg. He's a bit unhappy. He's not making a lot of money, actually. His father's making a lot more than him. He thinks he should be earning more. He's not getting the same, I think, satisfaction of being the center of attention that he was for years on the road. So where does that take us next into the 1770s? They go to uh, Vienna a bit, um, Munich, um, but then he goes to Paris Yes, with his mother mm-hmm. uh, because his father is stuck in Salzburg doing his job. Mozart goes to Paris to find maybe a better opportunity, but he can't go alone. His mother has to um, tag along as well. Yeah, Mozart's trip to Paris was was eventful for him. It was an important uh, part of his evolution as a composer. Um, As you say, he went there seeking employment. It it didn't pan out. But while he was there, he was exposed to to different composers that he hadn't heard before and different styles, one of those styles being the Symphonia Concertante that was very popular, particularly in, in, in France at that time, This was a harmonious conversation with two or more instruments and an orchestra. And so it was during that time in Paris that he wrote the Symphonia Concertante, and that was for violin and viola. So he's working with the popular music. He's doing everything he can to gain better employment. Um, there's a very interesting piece that comes out of this his time in Paris, too, and that is the concerto for flute and harp, yes. this double concerto. And today, when you think about it, oh, it's a nice concerto for 
two instruments, a double concerto, we can say. But there's a lot more to it than just that. He was actually teaching a father and daughter, or he's teaching a daughter um, composition. Yeah. He was having to teach, you know, lessons as musicians still do to this day. He said she was a, a horrible, she was horrible at composing, but she could play the harp. Um, and her father played the flute and the this um, wealthy father wanted a piece for both of them. So he had him write a um, flute and harp concerto. I think he actually ended up not even getting paid for the concerto. He only got half of his fee for his lessons. It was a very, very bitter um, kind of breakup. But it, he puts these two instruments together that are very, very different. They sound very, very different, too. They do. And it is said that Mozart wrote the harp piece of that almost as if he were writing for a piano. And it's funny because it sounds like it's really a sonata, something for flute and um, a keyboard. And that's really also how the harp was thought of at the time, kind of an extension of something like a harpsichord or a clavier or serving the same function. Yes, it was not a prominent or even a, a regular member of the orchestra at that point. It's a beautiful piece that is Kerschel uh, 299. So if you just Google Mozart K299, you'll get to this piece. Um, beautiful, but it also was... Um, very bitter for Mozart, as he didn't get paid for it. Yes, yeah. But as you say, he he was impressed with the harp playing of this young woman and impressed with the flute playing of her father, the Duke, Yeah. but not with her compositional skills. No, no. But it was also a hard time for Mozart in that his mother ended up dying in uh, July of 1778 while they're in Paris. It was very hard to get um, a doctor um, for her, she wanted, I think, a specifically like a German doctor or something, and it was hard for Mozart to get someone. It was several days, and she ended up dying, and obviously that's traumatic for Mozart, but also Leopold, he's in another country, and the letters that we see from him to Mozart are also, I don't want to say maybe taking out anger on Mozart, but he was very upset, and also, you know, maybe putting some of that on Mozart unfairly. Yes, and I, I understand that Mozart didn't break the news to him himself. He had someone else break the news to Leopold okay. while they were on the road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very, very difficult time. As you said, it did not pan out in um, in Paris. So he goes to go back. It's 1778 now. Mozart is, what, about 22 years old? Yes. And he's going to go back to Salzburg. But he doesn't go straight back. He goes to Strasbourg, um, Mannheim, and Munich. Is that, is that also the time when he meets his cousin that he also was in love with, we think? Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. And they had a little bit of a flirtation there for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've not said it already, but it should be said. Mozart was kind of rambunctious. He loved billiards. He loved cards. He loved playing pranks. He wrote hilarious um, songs, things we can't really repeat. And a lot of his letters <laughs> have a lot of humor in them that, you know, I'm not going to say you know, right now. But him and his cousin um, wrote, you could say, very inappropriate letters to each other. Um, but it's, it's, and it's, of course, Leopold was not happy about this at all. No, and we should say this, this young woman was not uh, Constanza, was not the wife, the woman that he eventually married. But Mannheim was a very important stop for him, too. 
Um, the Mannheim Orchestra was very well known for um, for being a very good orchestra and uh, for these, you know, these loud dynamics and these sudden dynamics that were going on uh, with the Mannheim Orchestra. And Mozart had toured with them. He worked with them in Paris for a while, too. And so on this trip home that you're talking about, he stayed in Mannheim for a while and, and was trying to make some sort of contacts there and did get a, um, a commission from uh, a surgeon who was very wealthy to write some music for flute. Oh, yes, that's right. And um, he's this is how music is at the time. He's having to write for, you know, aristocrats, very wealthy people. Yes. Um, it's not really public, very, very public concerts at this point. Like yes. Like a theater would be the theater of the royal court, and these operas would be um, premiered there. Yes. So he stays in Mannheim for a while. He makes it back to Salzburg in 1779, and... Is this is also a year when he's continuing to write? He's writing music for functions. He's writing dance music. He's writing pieces that well people commission him for. One is one of the most popular serenades is number nine, the post horn serenade for um, graduation yes. ceremonies. I think they would march from the dean's house or something back to campus, and the music would be playing. Um, but it's a beautiful little. Um, serenade, not little. It's actually quite long, but mm-hmm. it gets its name post horn from this horn solo he inserts towards the end. You can listen to it and not have to know that this is from a graduation ceremony. Of course, you can enjoy it either way. But there's something more fun about it when you think about this kind of horn call towards the end of the piece. Maybe they're getting back to the campus with a a whole crowd of people that are excited to graduate. I mean, I wasn't alive in 1779 Salzburg, if you didn't know. Really? But (laughs) it's I can imagine, you know, this was a fun thing. The horn would be playing, people would be cheering, that kind of thing. There was a live orchestra. Of course, they didn't have recordings back then. And it was said that if you squinted real hard, you would see Air Mozart sitting in that orchestra playing the violin right at at these uh, commencement exercises. Oh, yeah. And as you say, the post horn was was a relatively large work. He wrote a number of serenades and divertimenti for for ceremonies and for parties and occasional things like that that sometimes were performed outdoors. Serenade is actually, or the post-horn serenade is actually one of his larger serenades. But already, just from that little bit that you played there, John, we can hear Mozart's evolution uh, as a composer just from even 10 years earlier when he was very young. It's a little bit more, it's a little deeper now. The melody's a little longer, a little bit more complex, more interesting harmonies going on. And he's writing more opera. And we'll get to his big opera premiere right after this. Let's take a break. Okay. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. We're in 1780 now with Mozart going into 1781. He's been writing some opera, and this is his big break, right? Yes. He was given a commission by um, a court in Munich to write an opera for an event. And so Mozart took this opportunity with this commission in Munich to write his first large-scale work for opera, Idomeneo. And it's based on Idomeneo, the king of Crete. 
And he used the choral moments very strategically and importantly in the movement, in that in the entire opera, so that certain themes that were being presented in the narrative were highlighted by the, the chorus. There are some wonderful choral movements. So people consider Idomineo to be a choral opera. Okay. We have an aria from this or an excerpt from one um Neptuno Sonori? Yes. And what is, is happening here? The, the chorus is singing praises to Neptune because the king, Idomeneo, had just survived a very treacherous sea voyage. And so the chorus, that is the people of, of the town, are giving thanks to the god of Neptune for granting Idomeneo safe passage on a treacherous sea. I mean, that's a remarkable difference in sound from some of the things we heard that were just composed a year or two before. Certainly, even percussion. We're hearing percussion now in yeah. this. Yeah, at larger larger orchestra as well. And this was a great success for Mozart, by the way. So you can imagine he was quite buoyed by the success of this first large-scale opera, and in Munich, no less. So he was getting some recognition now outside of Salzburg. I think it also confirmed for him that well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm too big for Salzburg, I'm going to leave because he was still working for um, Colorado, yes. the archbishop yes. in Salzburg, and he had gotten leave to go to Munich for a little bit and um, have this opera premiered. And of course, that leave ends when the opera is premiered and he has to go back. And he was very, Mozart was very upset because at this time, the archbishop had total control over Mozart. He would, um, Mozart could not just go anywhere and play, he had to have permission. So the archbishop doesn't want to kind of have him play everywhere. That kind of cheapens the value that the archbishop has for his musical royal court. So Mozart was missing on a lot of money. He was writing very angry letters to his father. Um, I'm supposed to just give up all this money for no reason. Um, He couldn't go play for some um, other royalty. He was very upset and was also, this was his... I think, tipping point of wanting to leave. And the archbishop said, fine, you can leave. Forget it. Get out of here. Only have your dad's permission. But Leopold, you know, had sided with Colorado. Right. It was a very, very rough part of their relationship, um, Mozart and his father, because Leopold is saying, don't do this. Don't just leave. Stay. You have a good here. Don't don't just run away. Yeah, that's right. But I think this is an example of Mozart's spirit. We we were talking about before a drive and ambition. He had not only talent and opportunity and a wonderful environment, a rich environment, but he had drive and ambition. And he wanted out. He he knew that he could produce some wonderful music, and he wanted the world to see it and make a good living. And so with that, um, I believe he was let go. Literally, with he was kicked in the butt. Out of the room. And, <laughs> and not by Colorado. Colorado sent one of his messengers apparently oh yeah. to do that to Mozart. Yeah. yeah. So now at 25, literally kicked in the butt out of the room. He's now free. He's not under the um, authority of um, the archbishop. So he goes to, from Munich, he goes straight to Vienna. And this is where 
he meets Constanza, right? Because yes. the Webers, Constanza Weber and Aloysia, the family, they had actually moved to Vienna, I yes. believe, because the father had died. And now they're in Vienna and they're taking in lodgers yes. at a house to, you know, kind of like an Airbnb, I guess. I don't know, to make <laughs> to make some to support the three unmarried um, daughters. But basically right away, he's falling for Constanza. He actually moves in as a lodger with um, the family yes. right away. Yes, he does. Yeah. Um, he, this might be considered Mozart's Declaration of Independence, this whole episode with, you know, having tense uh, relationships with his father over over his future, having tense relationships with his employer, Colorado, but emerging successful from all of those, moving on, declaring his independence, declaring his independence, that is, um, now moving to Vienna, which he called the land of the clavier. And so he was very optimistic. You're right. He was a little disappointed that Aloysia was was no longer interested in him and had already married. But he turned his attention to Costanza, her sister. Yeah, that's, that's a bold move <laughs> for Mozart. And long story short, Mozart marries Costanza. Mm-hmm. His father ended up giving some kind of begrudging permission, actually the day after they were married. He kind of went ahead and did it um, anyway. And this is a time for Mozart that I think he's he's free. He's, as you say, so driven. He's writing more and more and more. He's becoming very successful. He's also spending way more than he was making in, yes. in uh, money. He, uh, Some people think that he was gambling things off. I don't think that's, from what I've seen, I can't really find that. It's just that he loved billiards. He loved to play cards, but he wasn't actually, you know, throwing money away, or gambling, rather. No, and he was also still dependent upon commissions for money. I mean, it wasn't that he was independently wealthy at this point, so he still needed to make money. I think part of it was that Mozart wants to leave Salzburg, be on his own, because I think maybe he felt that he was part of the aristocracy or that he kind of deserved that place with the wealth, the servants, and all the trappings that go along with it. He didn't like being treated as just um, as they were treating, you know, lowly court musicians, treating them poorly, talking down to them. It was kind of like, well, you've played your bit. Now go back to your quarters kind of thing. Right. As he had with with Colorado in the Archbishop of Salzburg in Salzburg, um, Mozart would you know, have lodgings with the servants, would eat his meals with the servants. And you're right. He believed that his music and his stature was now that he he could grow beyond that. Vienna was the land of opportunity for him. So we're starting now into the into the 1780s now, and this is this very important, fertile era of for Mozart, the 80s. And he's writing some incredible music. We have some things to um, listen to, particularly with his piano concertos. Yes. Going on to number 19, I know you've talked about how beautiful the second movement is. Yes. There are people who just love just love the Mozart second movements of his piano concertos. I particularly am fond of uh, slow movements of 19 and 23 because at this point now we can see Mozart expressing himself in very rich and poignant musical language. He's not just composing now for the audience to provide something pleasing to them. He's now expressing himself. Maybe he doesn't know he's doing it. Maybe it's not conscious. But we're hearing now deep expression in some of these middle movements, sometimes a little sadness, sometimes a bit wistful, um, in pain maybe sometimes, or just experience of sublime beauty. But these are now personal expressions that we're hearing, uh, so music not just pleasing for people. That wasn't the main intent. Let's listen to the second movement and excerpt here of his piano concerto number 19.
and I think as he was getting bigger and bigger with the orchestrations and things with opera, he was also mature enough in, in this way to just pare it down to just the most simple of harmonies, simple melody. Um, and it's just, it says so much with so little. Yes, it does. And um, it's very poignant and, and wistful. Um, but I think still, even with paring it down, as you say, this is, there's not big orchestration behind him at that point. Right. I feel I think it's still a little more sophisticated than than some other composers than say Salieri or a contemporary. Oh case. yeah, we heard in the very beginning of that example, there was a little introduction with the orchestra before the piano comes in for that second movement. With the twenty third piano concerto, I believe the piano just starts yes. by itself straight away. I mean, by itself, it sounds like it's a work for solo piano. Yes. You know, a little bit later on in that movement, the orchestra mirrors that theme with the piano. It's just a glorious moment and one of the most beautiful moments, I think, of that piano concerto. He's also writing... String quartets, a lot yes. of string quartets, yes. Yes. especially yes. influenced by, we can say, Joseph Haydn, who we kind of call the father of the string quartet, who made this genre really popular, two violins, viola, and cello. Yes, that's right. Um, Mozart was um, uh, appreciative of the work that Joseph Haydn um, had produced. Joseph Haydn was, I think, about 30 years older or 25 years older than, than Mozart. Um, Mozart thought well of Haydn. He thought of him as an older colleague and an older friend. And yes, he was very, very influenced by, by the string quartets of Joseph Haydn and went on to compose a series of six string quartets that he dedicated to Joseph Haydn. And number 19 is uh, one of those, right? Yes. And it's known as the Dissonance Quartet. I remember the first time I heard this, I thought I was listening to something. I was listening to the wrong thing. Like, oh, this isn't Mozart this or something. This is Schnitke. Right. Yeah. It's, it's something very different. Let's just listen to how this opens. It's such a, a different sound. But the thing is, Mozart is writing, you know, these beautiful major key, you know, um, as you say, poignant melodies. But that's also that doesn't mean you're not also writing um, things with dissonance, things that are more stressed or kind of more anxiety sounding. That's right. And I think that shows Mozart's creativity. He's experimenting with that. He's, he's wanting to learn how sonorities are. And who's to say maybe that um, that, that was not... Uh, ill-considered at the time. Maybe that was completely legitimate at the time and not, not an aberration. Um, that's So we're talking now 1784, 1785. He's free. He's married. Yep. They have six kids. Only two, sadly, make it beyond infancy. Mm -hmm. Mozart is spending way too much money. They are kind of, they're starting to go 
into debt, and that's Mozart's trying to keep that under wraps, but also at the same time, these incredible works and one of his most popular operas, The Marriage of Figaro. Yes, which... Was, that was composed in 1786, and that is based on the, the trilogy of plays by Beaumarchais that is a little bit of a parody of the nobility and strives to show that uh, the nobility had some foibles too and that the servants who were working for them could, in fact, have noble, more noble causes than some of the nobility. That was Beaumarchais. That was based on the Beaumarchais play. So um, Mozart took the second one of those of the trilogy, the Nazi di Figaro, Marriage of Figaro, and that was in 1786, and worked with a librettist who was a writer at the time, Italian writer by the name of Lorenzo da Ponte, and produced La Nazi di Figaro, which is just a gem. It has poignancy to it, it has uh, an overture that could stand the test of time all, all by itself, and it has some wonderful and humorous uh, ensemble scenes. Uh, funny, funny libretti uh, by by uh, but De Ponte, who worked with him f- on some other operas too. Yeah, and so we'll listen to an excerpt from here. We have um, part of an aria. Is it Porgi Amore? Yes. That is, it's beautiful, and it's it's a totally different sound than the Idomineo. I think it's it sounds, it sounds more Italian. Yes, it does. It has a wonderful melody going on with it, and and it's a it's a it's a moment in the opera where the countess is lamenting the fact that her husband, the count, is being uh, disloyal to her. Is he's mm-hmm. he's having going on in these um, infidelities? Yeah, and I think that this is another example of the maturity of Mozart. He didn't feel it was necessary to have a big bombastic orchestra underneath that. And um, there are people who will say that it's difficult to perform Mozart, no matter what the instrument is or if you're a singer, because sometimes the line is so simple, the notes are so simple, that you think, oh, this is going to be easy to perform. But to, to nope. carry it off, yeah. It's way, the the more easy it looks, the, the harder musically it often is. It is, because you have to carry the line. Yeah. Yeah, you have and, to, there's so many, you have so many options and directions, and a direction you take one note in can affect everything down the line, or something you even do ten minutes later in uh-huh. an opera. You know, it, it can change that. Now, but speaking of, of bombastic, um, 1786 with the Marriage of Figaro, 1787 his opera Don Giovanni. Yeah. Now this one is, I think it has some pretty bombastic uh, moments. To kind of compare what we just heard, um, we have, tell us about this section, when Commendatory arrives for dinner uh, yes. at, the, at the end of this the opera. This is at the end of the opera. And, and I might add that, uh, again, another collaboration with the great librettist Lorenzo da Ponte, all in Italian, of course. Mm-hmm. So Mozart was writing for, a, for the Italian language uh, with these operas. Um, yes, uh, early in the opera, Don Giovanni is a swashbuckling, you know, um, Oh, he arrogant person, and he's taking advantage of everybody, women and men, and he kills this commendatory, this human person. He comes back as a non-human, but he Mozart murders him when like right at the like the first scene. Yeah, I think. very very early on. Yeah, 
And what we hear throughout the rest of the opera are repercussions of that because his daughter is wants revenge against Don Giovanni, and she'll do anything she can, and she appears throughout the opera doing everything she can to get Don Giovanni. Well, finally, at the end, Don Giovanni's preparing a, a, a dinner, and the commendatore, I'm not sure if he's preparing a dinner or not at that point, but anyway, the commendatore appears to Don Giovanni, and remember, he's dead, but now he arrives as a statue, and it's a bass role, so he's got this big, booming voice. And it just is a very scary moment where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this commendatore arrives in the form of a statue and invites Don Giovanni to dinner. Don Giovanni, being very arrogant, you know, says, no problem, I can deal with this. But his servant, Leporello, who is sort of the comic foil of the, of the entire opera, is just scared to death. And oh, so, yeah. So the scene where the commendatore arrives and then the reactions of Don Giovanni and Leporello are really something. Mozart, I think, scored this really well. It's very scary. Very eerie, it, it, yeah. ghastly sounding. It, yeah, it's chilling, and we didn't hear the rest of that. But but if if you do go on and and listen to the rest of that, you'll hear Mozart does some interesting things with the orchestration. He does this scale that goes up and down, and it's a it's a scary uh, feeling because it's a scale that's going up in not not just in notes but with uh, crescendos, and then goes down, and he just keeps repeating that. That adds, I think, to the chills. And talk about a contrast going from Don Giovanni to this, a melody that I think most are familiar with. And that's a tune that we are all, you know, pretty familiar with. You hear it and, you know, you still hear it in movies and commercials and yes. things like that. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's what composing is like at the time where you are having to write one thing one day, something else the next. Or really, he's working at all these at the same time. Yes. Yeah, some things are for commissions. Some things you may think, well, or maybe are not for commission, but <clears throat> I might be able to publish them or sell them or perform them later and get fees that way. So you're working on those, those particular pieces for artistic value. And then, he, as you say, he has to switch gears and maybe write something for an occasion, a serenade or whatever like that. Yeah. Um, we get to now the later, the last couple years of his life. Um, that was 1787 with Don Giovanni and the melody we just heard from Ina Klein and Nachtmusik. Going into 1788 with his final symphony number 41 compared to how we heard his you know, first symphony years ago. Now it's a very, very different sound. It's a um, large orchestration. It's sophisticated, big, expansive orchestration. Deep expression, too, I, I think. And not just in that 41st, but I think the entire trilogy, 39 to 41. And he wrote them within, I think, like in the same month or something. Yeah. It was very fast in yeah. that summer of 1788. Um, it was quite amazing. 
and we're unfortunately towards the the end of his life. And it was this around this time of 1788 that um, his financial position caught up with him, and he was you know asking for loans. Um, he moved out to a suburb, I think, to um, save some money. They, and he was also performing very, very little. Actually, there's a great book. Um, I think it's just called Mozart by Maynard Solomon. And in the back, there's all these charts and everything. Um, and we have, we can see in 1786, 87, and 88, he gave 39 or more than 40 concerts a year. And then starting at the end of 1788 into um, 89, 16 concerts. Quite a reduction. 1790, seven concerts. Mm. That's a total of the public and private performances. So he was having a, he was still writing, but he was having a very hard go at, at a lot of things. But he has a burst in his final year in um, 1791 with creativity, with composing, also back again with money, mm-hmm. um, making more. In his last year alone, and we'll get to these, we have the Magic Flute, is opera. We have the Requiem. We have the big clarinet concerto and some beautiful vocal music as well. So in his final year in 1791, let's go ahead and listen to part of the um, the Magic Flute. Now, this is also, for his final opera, a different setting, a different story, right, than his very first, which is kind of, you know, Greek and values and mythology. Yes, this is a, essentially a fairy tale, and it's a singspiel, so it has some uh, some spoken dialogue as well. And there's an aria that you mentioned before that is sung by the Queen of the Night in this opera, and this aria, it's called Jehularacha. That's so hard. Yeah, and he keeps repeating that high note several times. Yes. Yeah, that's a very difficult work. Um, It's in an opera that some people might consider to be simple because the plot is relatively simple, but there's just some gorgeous music to the magic flute, not just that aria of the Queen of the Night. Of course. And although this is a different subject matter, it is still value-oriented. There's a whole—and we're going to do podcasts on basically— everything we've talked about in Mozart's life, one just on this opera of the Magic Flute, which has a lot of symbolism. I think Mozart dying early and being associated with Freemasons has given a lot of conspiracy theory um, as to what does this mean or what does that mean? So the Magic Flute, the glass harmonica piece we heard at the very beginning, that's also at this time, um, a little Benjamin Franklin connection there. Yes. Um, Also his clarinet concerto at this time, the only one he wrote, right? Yes. Absolutely beautiful. Here's the opening with the clarinet coming in. Still so popular, still an absolute staple in the clarinet repertoire. And I think you see a lot of that in his final years where his music, there's still staples for either auditions for singers or just singing in general for um, clarinetists or perhaps, you know, even for the, the Requiem that's still performed, I would imagine, a thousand times every year across the world. 
So you can't talk about Mozart without talking about Amadeus. I love that movie. Do you like it? Yes. I saw the play, though, and I actually preferred the play over, okay. the, over the movie. But yes, go ahead. I've never seen the play. I've seen the, the movie. Um, of course, it's a movie. It's, it's based on you know a false premise. There was no massive rivalry of Salieri and Mozart. I mean, Salieri was widely respected also probably by Mozart. I mean, he's one of the greatest teachers in Salzburg, a great composer. He had a court position, and Mozart wasn't able to get a court position at times. Yeah. Salieri was. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, But it's a movie. You have to have some drama to it. Th- that's and, right. But there are, as you, if you watch it again now, um, a lot of things we've talked about, there are a lot of, you know, I would say, I guess, movie truths you find in the movie. Maybe one scene has... You know, something from a, a whole year. I think the the argument with the archbishop and trying to quit, that happens in a few seconds as opposed to letters and all that stuff. But there is that, you see that tension, that arguing and yes. um, kick, kicking your butt out the, the door. <laughs> I think we see too, um, maybe there's an element of truth in that, in the movie and in the play, in that Salieri made deep down have been a little jealous of Mozart's talent. Oh, yeah. You know, Salieri was a, was a fine composer. But he knew that Mozart had an extra spark with, with creativity, with melody, harmony, structure that, that Salieri didn't have. And I would bet that, Sal, that Mozart didn't think real, real highly of, of Salieri's music. He may have thought it was just fine, but yeah. I think that he probably thought his own music was a, a better quality than Salieri's. Yeah, but a big, a big part of the movie is the Requiem. And there's some stuff that I did not actually quite know. Um, apparently... The Requiem, it was commissioned by this anonymous person who I, we now believe is Count um, Valsig. Yes, but we think that the messenger who delivered the message or the commission to Mozart may have been the Count's messenger. Oh, okay, not him himself, right. someone else. That makes sense for yeah. your account, you know, yeah. get someone else to do it. <laughs> um, but the whole thing was this guy, this Count, would have composers write things, and then like a year later, he'd have it performed and say he wrote it. Yeah, he'd um, pass them off as his own, yeah. And he did it a, a lot, and he was hoping to do it with the Requiem, and he was very prepared to pay a lot of money to um, Mozart um, for this. So Mozart is working on this, but December 5th, 1791, he dies, and it's unfinished. Yes. Um, Mozart um, was, was very ill at the time. He needed the money, and the count was willing to pay him half up front to start his work, and only ha- the remaining half when it was finished. Yeah. Um, Mozart did sketch out parts of the, the Requiem that he didn't finish, so at least when Sussmeyer came back came in, he, he was a, a friend of Mozart's, um, he was able to, to work from some of the drafts and some of the sketches Mozart had already prepared, for example, for the Lacrimosa, which wasn't completely Sussmeyer's. He, he was basing it on, on Mozart's sketches. But uh, Costanza com- comes to play very prominently in this Requiem because when Mozart died, she realized that she may not get that second half. Yeah, she of, was very concerned. Yeah, yeah. So she asked first another composer to to finish the uh, the requiem, and uh, sorry, I don't remember his name off off the top, but he did a little bit of it, and then felt that the task was above him and he couldn't complete it. So he gave it back to Constanza. She then gave it to Sussmeyer, who had a very warm relationship with Mozart, and um, Constanza did not reveal that Mozart had died at that point because she wanted to collect the the remaining right. half of the of the, the commission. And also, she felt that if the public knew that that work was really not fully Mozart's, that it would have less value yeah. uh, for publication and for future performances. So she played a, a very important role here in being very careful about making sure that when it was completed, it had Mozart's autograph on it. I mean, it was, and you, you, just, you can't blame her whatsoever, especially at this time. It's the 18th century, as a, now a widow, 
she needs this um, payment. She needs this money. So Mozart dies. He gets sick, um, dies December 5th, 1791. He had completed a couple of the first movements, yeah. and then the other parts were just really sketched out, a melody, yeah. a counter melody. That's right. And it's amazing that Sussmeyer, I think he was like 20, in his mid-20s or early 20s, and he sat down and finished it. And when you listen to the um, towards the end of it, if you listen to the whole thing, it sounds like Mozart. Here is the we have to listen to part of this requiem. It's it's incredible. Um, the introduction. With music like that, it sounds so daunting, so I don't want to say scary, but it sounds it sounds dark. There's so much to it, and it's I mean, how could you not have a drama unfold about this piece? <laughs> That's it's right, perfect for it. Judgment Day will come. You know, you hear it with the big kettle drums pounding at yes. the very beginning. Um, later on, um, Constanza said a few things about about the the, uh, the requiem that people aren't sure if they're true or not. But one of those things that she supposedly said was she thought that Mozart was being poisoned, that Mozart had said he was being poisoned yeah. while he was writing this, and that he was writing his own requiem. Whether that is true or not, or that's just maybe something that she believed and later told, we we don't know. And it's kind of a perfect storm for conspiracy. There's things we don't know. There's rumor he died while writing a requiem um, from a shadowy figure, you know, <laughs> in the alley with a coat, you know, kind of thing. It's it's just perfect for um, for conspiracy. And it is, you can say, Kerschel 626, the final number in this catalog, you know, going from one to here. Um, we can listen to a little bit more of this um, requiem. I'm married to a trombone player, so I hear this part. I've heard it thousands of times. Mm-hmm. I've even tried to play it myself. It's kind of fun. Um, uh-huh. But that is the tuba mirum, and it's such an s- incredible moment for voice and trombone. Everyone should definitely listen to Mozart's Requiem. Um, but it, it's such a conspiracy, so rife with it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's also some misconceptions about what happened after he died, because it was like, oh, he died and he was buried in like a common grave or something like that. Yes. Um, but he was actually, it was just a very normal um, situation of someone dying at this time um, in, in this place, in that he died, there was... Um, a burial in what's called, I think, a common grave, and that is just a common person's grave, not a mass grave or something like that, um, which I've definitely heard before for Mozart. Um, no mourners there, which was also very typical. There were, however, um, ceremonies or memoriams after this, like in the city um, for Mozart. He was, you know, it wasn't like his death was just totally unnoticed. Um, but we don't know exactly where his grave plot was, um, because it was in this common grave. And at the time, and still in a lot of the world, uh, the grave is only there for 10, 
12, maybe 15 years. And if someone isn't there to pay the lease again, it's exhumed and used again. Um, the space was, I guess, precious. So the grave site that we have now for Mozart, well, it's actually a memorial. Yeah. Uh, we don't know if his his body is actually in there. I don't. I don't think it's thought that his body's there at all. But I think it, I think they do think that that is around the area of where he would have been buried in that um, in that cemetery. I see. And you know, after his death, Constanza uh, made sure that his name remained. You know, she did remarry. Yeah. But still, she promoted Wolfgang's works. Um, she wrote a biography about him right. later on in her life. She gave interviews about him. So she knew his worth. I think. Mozart's life is so well documented, it's almost impossible. We'd be here for years trying to talk about every day in Mozart's life. And we'll do episodes on individual things, maybe like the Requiem or, you know, his big operas. Um, but do you have anything else, Linda, for Mozart? I would just like to say that I think that he played a, a really crucial role in um, in the late classical era in advancing music beyond what was just expected by the public and that was accepted and desired by the public to present a more artistic bent and a more personal expression in music. And, of course, the great, great body of work that he produced from everything from piano concertos and solo piano works to um, works for instruments, opera. He was very much important as an opera composer uh, and uh, choral music. So he, he covered all the bases. And you should definitely get through those bases of Mozart, too. We actually, most of what we've just sampled are, comes from a box set from the brilliant record label of almost everything Mozart wrote. It's like a hundred something CDs. Um, and it's got everything in there from the glass harmonica to the full operas to, um, we'll leave it with this. Someone commissioned Mozart to write something for five trumpets and timpani. It was probably played once at a ceremony when someone with a lot of money was walking in a room <laughs> and then right. probably not played again. No, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, you're very welcome. You know, in my home, I have a big lithograph of Salzburg okay. framed. It was it, My father was a huge, huge, huge Mozart fan, and he had this huge lithograph of, of uh, Salzburg done, a beautiful frame. He hung in his office all of his career. And I now have it in my office or my home. So I'm reminded of Mozart every time I walk in that door. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. There will be more about Mozart. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on things we talked about in this episode, like the glass harmonica or the clavier, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or ideas for episodes, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Panther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.